In November of 1786, Margaret Gaston petitioned the North Carolina General Assembly to free an enslaved woman named Hannah Bowers. Two years earlier, in April, an enslaved man called Ned Griffin had petitioned for his own emancipation. Ultimately, the General Assembly granted both Hannah and Ned their freedom. In this episode, we intend to explore the similarities and differences between their stories and explore what they can tell us about the time period and its record-keeping practices. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast sharing true stories from the Old North State using materials found in the State Archives of North Carolina. Taking us through these stories and more, here's your host. My name is Annabeth Poe, and I'm the podcast intern here at the State Archives. Today, I'm your guest host. Joining me is Hannah Nicholson. Hey, everyone. I'm Hannah. Uh, I'm the Friends of the Archives intern in the Records Description Unit. Yeah, and thank you for being here. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about our internships here at the State Archives. But first, we're going to talk about the two stories that Hannah mentioned and how she uncovered them. This episode is part of a three-part series where we uncover stories from the archives that have rarely been acknowledged. Each, in some way, represents profound strength within a system that consistently failed to recognize women and people of color for their contributions to the state of North Carolina. Now, we tell their stories. So, Hannah, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be at the State Archives? Yeah, so um, I am a master's student at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So, I just finished my first year and I'm going to be going into my second year. And so I applied for the uh, Friends of the Archives internship because I noticed it was about conscious description. Um, and I'm, that's something I'm really interested in. So for the project, it's part of the America 250 project, which is kind of celebrating an upcoming anniversary for the country's founding. Um, and so I'm creating a collection guide that explores underrepresented voices in the North Carolina General Assembly records. We talk a lot about women, people of color, including enslaved persons and free people of color, American Indians, and religious minorities, and highlight um, records in the General Assembly records group that pertains to these groups of people. Yeah, sounds like there's a lot of documents to go through to find those specific sources that you were looking for um, within this big collection. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about what you found when you looked at the records and what that process was like? Yeah, so I used the digital collections, um, which was really helpful. Um, And so I noticed a lot. The largest number of records that I found were petitions by women. Most of them related to financial requests, um, either being reimbursed for products that they lent to the army during the American Revolution or if their property was confiscated, trying to get it back. And so kind of our goal was to find unique documents relating to groups of people that aren't always recognized um, and then highlighting them and putting them into a guide that makes them a little easier to find. Um, So users have to comb through the digital collections a little bit less. Yeah, that's definitely an important project, especially since you're making it a little bit easier to find these records and highlight these stories. So were there any stories that particularly stuck out to you as you were finding them? I know you mentioned two stories at the beginning. Um, I'd love to hear more about those and uh, what exact records you were looking at when you discovered them. So I didn't find a ton of them, but I did find some manumission records, um, which were really interesting. Um, So a manumission record is a record um, giving freedom to an enslaved person. 
So at the time, it was a legal process, so the enslaver couldn't just decide. And actually, in a 1741 law, it actually was made harder to do so. Um, so there had to be like specific criteria to free an enslaved person. They had to do some kind of meritorious service, was the exact wording. Um, and then you had to go to the county court, and they had to sign off and give you a license. It was very specific. It wasn't just something you could do off the cuff. Yeah, so you said the General Assembly passed a bill that made it harder for people to uh, free enslaved people. Can you explain why they did that? Yeah, so it's not said outwardly um, in the law, but there were lots of reasons. One was definitely to limit the amount of emancipations that were taking place. Um, and we actually see a really interesting petition. I believe it was Pascratank and Perkermans County. Um, the people of those counties wrote in because Quakers in the area were emancipating large numbers of um, enslaved persons. Um, and so they actually wanted, the people in those counties wanted to put a stop to it. I found one document that actually, I forget the exact wording, but it said that like freeing large numbers of enslaved persons was setting a dangerous precedent and it was dangerous to society. And the Quakers actually ended up writing in as well later, um, basically arguing against the new restrictions requiring like a meritorious service requirement because it limited their ability to emancipate enslaved persons. Um, and so it kind of, it didn't quite halt the like widespread Quaker attempts to fight back against enslavement, um, but it definitely hindered it substantially. Yeah, um, that's definitely true. I'm from Randolph County, which is in the center of the state, and there is a large Quaker population there. And during this time period, they actually found some stops on the Underground Railroad to kind of subvert these laws and help enslaved people um, escape. So you mentioned, you know, finding all of these documents, especially in context of this bill that prevented, you know, manumission and stuff like that. Were there any particular manumission records that you found that were um, interesting, especially after that was passed, that really stuck out in your mind? Yeah, so one really interesting one I found was one of the ones I mentioned when we started. Um, so it is a bill um, by a woman named Margaret Gaston. Um, and so in the bill, she says that her late husband, Alexander Gaston, who died during the Revolutionary War, he'd always said during his lifetime that he wanted to free an enslaved woman named Hannah. Um, and so she writes into the General Assembly basically saying, this is what my husband wanted. Um, and so I want to go ahead and go through with it. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gastons? I know that's a really popular name around North Carolina. We even have a county, Gaston County. So could you talk a little bit about the Gastons and, uh, you know, Hannah in that world that she would have lived in? Yeah, so the Gaston family, um, so I think the most famous Gaston is William Gaston. Um, he's who Gaston County is named after, the city of Gastonia. I think there's a lake named after him. He was, I think, a judge, a lawyer, a congressman, um, so he did a lot of good things for the state. Um, and his father was Alexander Gaston, who died during the American Revolution, um, and his wife was Margaret. So we know that the Gaston family enslaved Hannah. Um, we don't quite know her background with the family. Um, so it's implied that she's a woman because she's said to be married, so um, she's not like very young. Um, and we know she's of mixed race. The bill mentions that. Um, but other than that, like for her background, it's a little unclear. 
And you mentioned she was married. Were you able to find her in any other documents, like in a census record or something like that? Yeah, so um, it was a little difficult because there's so little. Um, but we looked at the county that the Gaston family lived in, which was Craven County. Um, and they did a census in 1790. So um, the bill also mentions that her husband was named Solomon Bowers. Um, And when I say husband, at this time, unfortunately, enslaved persons couldn't legally get married. But a lot of times they would consider themselves spouses and they would kind of be considered by others as spouses. It just wasn't legally binding. Um, So her husband was named Solomon Bowers. So then when we looked in the 1790 census, we found a Saul Bowers. Um, And he was the head of a household that had three members, and all three members were um, free people of color. So we don't know for sure that Saul Bowers in the census is the Solomon Bowers mentioned in the bill. Um, But given that the household fits what you would expect, it's the same county, um, we suspect that Hannah Bowers went ahead and lived with Solomon Bowers, and they might have had a child or another relative living with them. And from there, that's really all we know. Um, The rest is kind of speculation. Um, But it's an interesting contrast with the Gaston family where you can find articles on NCpedia and there are books written about them. Even Margaret, um, because women had less written about them, but because she was white and wealthy um, and related to famous people such as Alexander and William Gaston, um, there's a lot about her that you can find, um, even just with like a Google search. So the contrast between the two we found kind of interesting. Especially since they both show up in this same bill that Margaret is filing with the General Assembly. So can you tell us a little bit more about the context of the bill? I know you mentioned that she filed it because her husband said that he was going to free Hannah for a long time. Um, And here she is finally filing this bill to actually do something about that. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that? And like now that we know who they are, what happened after the bill went into the General Assembly? Yeah, so um, she wrote a little bit of the petition, but she had someone write on it also and help her submit it. And then from there, it seems to have gone fairly smoothly, which perhaps isn't surprising because she was very well known during her lifetime. Um, And I mean, her husband was a Revolutionary War hero. Um, And so it went through the General Assembly and they went ahead and wrote a bill and freed Hannah. Um, And yeah, so emancipated her. That's... uh really interesting that the General Assembly would take that step, especially with a woman writing the bill to free uh, another woman. Yeah, and I wonder, um, because Margaret seems to be very smart. She was very educated. She was um, educated in a convent in France. Um, And so I wonder if she had men write on her petition. Um, So I wonder if she realized that she might need, even with her status and her being well-known, she might have needed a male voice to kind of give her more power, I guess, and kind of more authority. Um, So this is all speculation, of course, but I wonder if she was kind of using those gender dynamics just to get what she wanted, which was emancipating Hannah. Yeah, it's also really interesting, too, that Hannah was the only enslaved person mentioned in the bill. Did the Gastons have other enslaved people working for them? And what happened to them? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, So Hannah was not the only enslaved person in the Gaston household. Um, In Alexander Gaston's will, um, it's recorded that they um, enslaved 28 people, seven enslaved men, eight enslaved women, um, five enslaved male children, and then um, eight enslaved female children. Um, 
they include their names, and he didn't free any of them, unfortunately. Um, so Margaret and um, their son, William, inherited them. And so it's hard to tell exactly why Hannah was pulled out. Um, because there were other Hannahs actually recorded um, as part of Alexander Gaston's estate. So it's not exactly clear, but we kind of know that it wasn't because of like an abolitionist sentiment, um, because William Gaston, um, Alexander Gaston's son, who Gastonia is named after, even though he, he was a member of the General Assembly and he was a judge and a lawyer um, and many other things, he was very vocally against enslavement, but he also owned 163 people. So even though he was against it in what he said, he didn't really live by that. And so that kind of seems to reflect on the entire family in that um, even though Hannah was sort of the exception, not the rule with them deciding to emancipate her. Yeah. And you said 163, right? Yes. I want to make sure we hit that number yeah, he actually, um, in his estate, um, it's broken down. He had a house in town and then a house in the country. Where? In what town? Um, I believe New Bern. That was where the family was located. Um, he moved around a little bit, but New Bern is where most of this has happened. Um, but yeah, so it said that he had 22 enslaved persons in town, and then the rest lived on his plantation, which was likely in New Bern. And that's uh, especially interesting considering like the context of slavery at the time period. According to NCpedia, 53% of enslavers in North Carolina owned five or fewer enslaved people, and only 2.6% of the enslaved people lived on farms with over 50 other enslaved people before the Civil War. Um, so the fact that he had 163 and they were divided over these two locations, it speaks to the amount of wealth that this family had. And I think it also speaks to the fact that th they had all these things named after them. And there's this legend of the Gastons in North Carolina that, you know, you talking about it, it seems like it was way overblown, especially because they owned all of these people. The family's fame kind of built on itself a little bit because um, William is very well known because he was a judge and all the things he did. Um, but his father was well known before him. Um, so his father died in the American Revolution, um, but the story is a bit dramatic. So it comes from um, Margaret, who is Alexander Gaston's wife. So we have to take it with a grain of salt. But according to the story, what happened was they were in New Bern um, and the British were coming to use the phrase. Um, so Alexander was going to leave the city to safety, um, but he left his family behind um, because they weren't in as quite as much danger because they weren't as well known. But he got the timing wrong. He got wrong information. So he came back to the city, but the British were there. And when they realized he was there, they chased after him. He tried to flee, but he didn't make it. And so Margaret, his wife, comes after him because she's worried. Um, and she shows up right when the British are there. And so according to her tale, she's on her knees begging for them not to shoot her husband. And they ignore her and fire over her shoulder, essentially. And he's killed. So that story, of course, is kind of dramatic. So it became really famous. Um, and then Margaret also was kind of an icon in her own right in New Bern. Um, she was really involved with bringing the Catholic Church to North Carolina. Um, and then she was also like a very dedicated mother. She was very involved in William's schooling. Um, so she's also included in a lot of sources on him. 
so yeah, they kind of built on each other's fame. So by the time William was alive and doing his thing, um, they were very well known. And sometimes the amount of people that he owned and his family owned is unfortunately forgotten. Yeah, which again, I think speaks to the fact that like this kind of aura was probably why the bill was accepted and allowed to be brought in the first place. I'm just glad that there was a... Um, you know, repercussion from that, that Hannah was able to be freed and that it was accepted. On that note, we will take a short break and come back and hear about the other story, um, Ned Griffin, that you mentioned at the beginning. Are you a family historian or genealogist on the hunt for deeper connections to your past? You may want to start your search with the new Cohabitation Records Digital Collection. Transport yourself back to 1866 North Carolina, where former enslaved individuals sought recognition for their unions as husband and wife with the introduction of cohabitation bonds. These records shed light on post-Civil War marriages in North Carolina, offering a great resource on the history and genealogy of African Americans during a time where few resources are available. From names and ages to the length of their marriages and more, each record holds a precious piece of your family's story waiting to be uncovered. Ready to explore? Visit the North Carolina Digital Collections website today at digital.ncdcr.gov. That's digital.ncdcr.gov. And start connecting with your past. Welcome back. So I promised before the commercial that we were going to talk about Ned Griffin. So let's start. Um, who was he and what is his story? Yeah, so Ned Griffin was an enslaved man. Um, so like Hannah, he was mixed race. Um and so in the General Assembly records, we found a petition um, written on Ned's behalf. So um, Ned's story is that, at least from where, what we know, is that he was purchased by a man named William Kitchen. Um, and William Kitchen had actually deserted from the Continental Army. Um, and so when he purchased Ned, he made a deal with Ned and he said, if you will fight in my place, then I will emancipate you. Um, and so this wasn't an uncommon practice. And so Ned agreed and he actually fought honorably. He fought in the, um, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. And then after he came back to William Kitchen and not only did William Kitchen not honor their agreement, he tried to um, sell him to another person. And so Ned very understandably was not happy about this. Um, and so he petitioned the General Assembly to be emancipated, and two officers or other people in the army actually petitioned as well um, and wrote in on his behalf and spoke about his service and how he fought very honorably. And in the end, the General Assembly sided with Ned and said that William Kitchen had made this agreement with him um, and that he had to honor it, and they ended up emancipating him. Okay, so Ned Griffin went and fought in the American Revolution in place of his enslaver, and then he petitioned the General Assembly. Yes, I don't think he wrote the petition himself, because at the very bottom there's an X, um, which sometimes if someone wasn't able to write, they would write an X, and then someone would write the actual petition for them. So not 100% sure, but just given how things often happened. I believe that that's what happened. But the petition is on his behalf, which in itself was very unusual because with the Hannah Bowers case, for example, Margaret Gaston was the one who wrote the petition. 
Um, and even that was unusual somewhat because it was a woman writing the petition. In Margaret's case, because she was a widow, that gave her a little more leeway um, because widows kind of had an odd social status and that they didn't have all the legal rights um, that men did. But at the same time, they kind of had to take on some of the traditional role because they didn't have a husband to do it for them. Um, so that may be partly why Margaret um, did submit her petition. But if you remember, she also had um, men write the petition for her. So even then, she didn't quite have that much leeway. Um, but yeah, back to Ned, it's very unusual that the petition was submitted on his behalf. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially since at that time period, enslaved people didn't really have legal rights, correct? No, um, unfortunately, they were considered property, um, so they didn't have rights of their own. You also mentioned that some soldiers wrote on his behalf, too, as part of the petition. Can you talk a little bit more about that and like what they said about him? It was two soldiers, I believe. One was a bit higher up that Ned served under, and then the other, I believe, was just in the same unit or group. Um, and so they confirmed that he was there, that they fought with him, and then also spoke about his service and said that he fought honorably, um, he did his duty, um, and he held up his end of the deal, so to speak. And so does this uh, qualify under that meritorious service um, clause that you mentioned earlier that kind of subverted that 1774 law that the General Assembly passed? Yeah, so that's a good point because the General Assembly seemed to think so, um, but it's so subjective. I can't imagine someone would say that wouldn't count as meritorious service, but there's not really a definition for it. So someone could. Um, and back to the Hannah Bowers case, it's the contrast there is kind of interesting because we don't quite know how she would count for meritorious service. So that's an interesting contrast there. But yeah, the meritorious service clause kind of was used in cases like this, but it wasn't helpful for other cases. That's so interesting that they would, you know, apply this law without really having a definition behind what exactly that means, allowing it to be used in this case, but not in other cases. Uh, so he served in the war. He was freed through this bill, right? Yes. You said that, he, that it was a successful petition. Yes, it was. And then what happened after that? So he served in the American Revolution. Were there any other kind of things that he got for his service in that regard? I wasn't able to find any personally, um, but part of the bill emancipating him says that he's entitled to the rights of a free person of color. Um, so he would have been able to purchase land. Um, I'm not sure if he received any land grants from his service, but by becoming a free person of color, um, that status, he gained more rights. Of course, there was still legal and just societal um, prejudice against him, but he received more rights just by virtue of gaining the free status. So it seems like both Ned Griffin and Hannah Bowers' stories can tell us a lot about the barriers that enslaved people faced during the revolutionary period. Um, it's really amazing that these records still exist. Can you talk a little bit about the patterns that you found while looking at these records and what they can say about um, research in this time period and what that looks like? Yeah, so um, something really interesting about these two records, specifically um, in terms of the General Assembly session records that I looked at, um, was unfortunately there isn't much from enslaved persons in their own words. In Hannah Bowers' case, we don't have her own words, but in Ned's we do um, in regards to his petition. He may not have written them, um, but he's the one who the thought 
behind them came from. And so in these records, um, unfortunately, enslaved persons either weren't given the opportunity or weren't able to create records. This lack of records sort of creates a silence in the archives. And so by looking at these records, even though they're rarer, they still exist. And by discussing them and kind of highlighting them, we can work to fight against that silence. Um, we can't create new records, but we can find the ones that do exist and make sure that they aren't forgotten or not noticed or so on. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about, you know, the way in which the records were created and then how we interpret them now and highlight them in the way that you're doing both in this podcast and through your LibGuide in general. So can you tell us a little bit about how we can access the LibGuide? Yeah, so um, the LibGuide is going to be published online. So it's still going through some tweaks, but hopefully it will be up soon. It's a combination of contextual information that kind of provides some of the background we've talked about today. And then also it just list the records in a way that makes them easy to find. Um, So I think we had them listed by folder, the name of the specific record, um, the date that it was created, and then the call number if you look for them in the search room. If you just need specific records on, um, say, a woman petitioning, then you can find a list of records that relate to that kind of subset that I found in the General Assembly records. And so we're hoping that creating the collection, we can kind of find some of these records that aren't noticed um, and have gotten sort of lost over the years and make it easier for researchers to access them and talk about them um, and just have thoughts flowing around them and new discoveries um, and kind of bring them forward. So yeah, I definitely agree that the LibGuide will be really good for researchers. What other stories can we find? Yeah, so um, there are so many stories in there. Um, For my internship, when I was looking through all of the records in the General Assembly, um, figuring out which ones could apply, um, I found so many different stories that kind of have gotten lost and hidden. Um, And it's a really good opportunity to find voices that might not have been heard before, um, because some of the voices that we find in these records are unique in that they're not, I guess, the typical what you would expect. Um, so like in receipts and other things like financial transactions, um, you don't always see these people um, such as women or American Indians or um, enslaved persons. And so by looking at these specific records in the guide, it kind of pushes these voices forward. I mean, we get to hear these stories when we don't always otherwise. Yeah, it sounds like a really important project, and I definitely can't wait to look at the LibGuide once it comes up. So now that we've heard about the records and know what's going to happen to them next with the LibGuide, what about you? Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about your internship and your time here at the State Archives, um, as well as what your future plans are going to be. Yeah, so I've had a great time. Um, I got to do so much amazing stuff, um, whether it was touring the archives and the library, and we also got to run across the street to the executive mansion, which was really cool. Um, I'd never been before. And then more in terms of like internship activities, I got to sit in on some um, committee meetings, which was really interesting. I'm kind of hearing the behind the scenes of how um, things are created and what goes on in the archives. So that was really amazing. 
As for me, um, I'm going back to school. I have to finish my last year. And then from there, we'll see. And how about you? Well, I will be graduating, hopefully, with a master's degree in public history from NC State. So right down the road from the State Archives. Um, But yeah, I'm very excited to continue to be able to tell stories using records in like a media format like we're doing right now on this podcast. Um, And so it's been a really great experience being here and being able to work on these episodes and talk to really interesting people like Hannah, who's joining us today, um, and hear about what they found in the archives and then doing my own research. Um, It's been a great experience. So yeah. Thank you all for joining me today. And thank you for listening to Connecting the Docs. I have really enjoyed guest hosting this episode and stay tuned for more stories from the State Archives of North Carolina. I'd like to give special thanks to our guest, Hannah Nicholson, the Friends of the Archive intern. Also, thank you to executive producer, John Horan, producers, Shauna Carr, Katie Crickmore, Josh Hager, Danny Shirella, Sabrina Burt, and of course, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dodson. I'm Annabeth Poe. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season four of Connecting the Docs. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People.